0: Hello everybody. Welcome Hello. again to uh, another Mythgard Movie Club. A wrinkling Time. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Yeah. Um, so here we are. So first off, to start with a few announcements, as soon as I get my mouse on the right screen. Um, as we do, we just want to remind you of some things that are coming up here at uh, MythGuard and our our sort of parent institution uh signum university um the first is our upcoming moots or our meetups um we've got london moot coming up in uh just about a month here um in april uh should be a good time first uh first event that we've held officially in england and uh Looking looking forward to it. I think we've got a good crowd coming. I know um, the CFP just ended for that, and and I think uh, there's a lot of good interest there. And then of course in June we have um, the uh, the the main moot, the Myth Moot uh, event that uh, we've been holding now, number five um, annually or, or, or almost annually, I guess not quite every year. It um, has been, but this year's uh, theme of fantastic frontiers that is still open for registration, Um, so you can go out to our uh, signumuniversity.org slash events and see that and some of our other upcoming things and register for that. Um, On Wednesday evenings, right now, currently running, um, although this is the second time that this has happened, um, it didn't actually occur this week, and if I recall, last time we had a movie club, it also did not occur that week, totally unrelated. It's not uh, anything to do, Typically, at Wednesdays, on Wednesdays at 10 p.m., we have our War of the Ring class, um, where Doctor uh, Corey, the Tolkien Professor Olson, is going through um, that uh, volume of the History of Middle Earth series. And of course, those books change out from time to time. Once he, I don't know, once he's just kind of tired of doing one, I guess. No, when he gets to the end, then he'll <laughs> uh, move on to the next book, and and you can vote for those actually if you donate to the university. Um, and, and get a say in what those next books will be. Um, and then coming up, we've got uh, already open for registration, our summer classes for Signum University. We've got some three really great classes um, coming up, Old Norse, uh, Introduction to Old Norse, which uh, is popular and may even be a little more popular this summer as well, because we've got an uh, edit poetry uh, class coming up in the fall, so if you kind of missed the intro to Old Norse last time around, you'll want to take advantage of that to uh, to prepare for that um, class in the fall, and then um, story of the Hobbit, which is uh, again Dr. Olson uh, talking through uh, his his research and his. Um, Discussion about the hobbit um, somewhat, I think based on his, the book that he wrote several years back now, um, but also a lot of original information in there. And then um, of course my, my favorite of the list here is the science fiction part one, um, which is just a really great survey of everything from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, all the way up through Robert Heinlein's the moon is a harsh mistress um, just covers a lot of science fiction ground. So if you've uh not read a lot of the stories there, it's a great time to catch up and and maybe fill in some of the gaps. And even if you have, it's maybe a good time to revisit some old favorite uh, science fiction stories. There's, there's a lot of information, not just even in um, what's actually read for the class, but in Dr. Sturgis's uh, note, she, she, she gives you, I think coming out of the class, you have like a reading list that's about five times longer than going into it. So Um, some good stuff there. And then we've got our, uh, also coming up this summer, uh, our, our Signum Academy, which last year we did uh, a camp for um, middle age or middle age, middle school age children, (laughs) 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 middle middle age children would be a a different thing. Um, uh, Middle school age children on the Hobbit. And this year we're expanding that to four different uh, books um, including, again, The Hobbit, uh, Lion, Witch and Witch, in the Wardrobe, um, Harry Potter, and the Sorcerer's Stone. And, of course, of particular interest tonight for a couple reasons, A Wrinkle in Time. Um, obviously, we're talking about the movie tonight, but also leading that uh, Signum Academy class this summer is our very own Sparrow Alden. Who, uh, Sparrow, what, what can you tell us about uh, what to expect for our summer camp uh, on Wrinkle in Time? What to expect?
2: What to expect at the summer camps is they are absolutely free to a library group, a homeschooling group, or even a family. They're directed to about fifth through eighth graders, and for two weeks, for each of the books, a different set of two weeks, every day there's a one-hour lecture in exactly this format, in this GoToWebinar format, and the participating Groups will have PDF packets of activities. For example, one of the interesting questions in A Wrinkle in Time is, what is science? How does that inform the way that Meg thinks? And so I've got some real-world experiments for kids to do right there, no cost, but Think like a scientist and have that be part of how you understand Meg's perspective on the world. That's the kind of thing we're doing, close observation, some journaling for activities for kids who like words, activities for kids who want to explore their feelings, and some hands-on stuff for people who learn kinesthetically like I do. It's going to be a lot of fun. Again, it's for any group library, maybe a bookstore would want to do it a uh, homeschooling group, or a family, click on the link sygdomuniversity.org academy backslash, and you'll have all the information you need to get registered to participate.
3: And just like people can watch our videos here asynchronously, they can participate in the program asynchronously if they cannot attend the live uh, sessions.
2: Absolutely, thank you for mentioning that, Sharon. If the family doesn't get together until supper time, the recording should be up by then and that could be your evening family activity.
1: Very cool.
4: Or you can do like I'm planning and just pose as a seventh grader so you can sneak into one of these classes.
0: (laughs) The only scenario in which that's acceptable, but we'll allow it.
1: (laughs) I was just gonna move to the next slide but uh okay you know. <laughs> okay you're probably uh, you, you can get away with posing as a yeah. seventh grader mm-hmm. you, the up. pigtails yeah, and the, you
4: know. yeah,
1: the, i can't do the pigtail thing so that's probably it you know <laughs> <laughs> oh
3: okay. uh,
1: all right well moving
0: on um <laughs> on that note um Uh, Our next um, movie clubs that are in the docket wanted to let you guys know that um, on May 3rd, um, probably around this time, but specific time uh, to be confirmed, uh, we're going to talk about alien. um, The Ridley Scott classic. If you guys haven't seen alien, you need to go see it right now. Um, It's going to be a good time. So we're going to have another panel talking about that. And then, uh, on June 14th, we'll be talking about the next Star Wars movie, Solo, um, and we'll be kind of trying to get the band back together a little bit and have some of the, the Star Wars folks that we've had from previous panels so that, you know, hopefully so we can have this ongoing conversation about these, this new sort of wave of Star Wars movies that we're getting. Um, so those are coming up over the next couple months. So, before we actually start with um, getting into the movie, um, one last preamble was we do want to say just a couple sentences about who we all are for those of you who may not know us. Um, So, I guess I'm the only one without their name on their picture, so I'll start. Um, I'm Kat, and uh, I'm one of the ones who hosts and runs these movie clubs. Um, I'm a Signum alum as of last year, and I also continue to work on staff there as the academic coordinator. So if any of you have taken or plan to take Signum classes, you will probably exchange a few emails with me at some point. Um, And uh, I actually wanted to mention that this is a 100% Signum staff panel. We do have, you know, Sparrow is also uh, in the faculty, and, um, you know, some of us have been students, but we are all on the staff as well, so I'm pretty proud of this panel that we have.
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'll go next. So, I'm Curtis. Uh, I sort of also run uh, these movie clubs and uh, actually Cat failed to mention our podcast. So I'll mention that, <laughs> uh, we have a podcast together, Kat and Kurt's TV review, where we talk about, uh, television shows like Buffy and Dr. Who and, uh, Battlestar Galactica. Um, I, yes. Uh, and as Kat mentioned, I am also, uh, a, a staff member at Signum university doing some of the, uh, marketing and, and, uh, helping out with the website a little bit. Um, And I also am an alum, having uh, finished up my thesis last year as well. So, um, yeah, so that's me.
3: I'll go next. Um, Okay. I'm Sharon Hoff, and uh, I wear a number of hats at Signum University. If anyone tries to uh, or needs to connect with Signum, you'll likely come across my path. I have a delightful um, name, title of uh, Doorword, which is uh, from Tolkien, uh, and um, so I just uh, sort of welcome everybody, uh, point them in the direction they need to go, and um, kind of that's that's where I'm at. And I was delighted to uh, jump on the bandwagon for this uh, movie club episode uh, because Franklin Time was a, a very pivotal, very important book in my youth. And um, so I just wanted to uh, participate and I'm very happy to be here.
4: Uh, I'll go next. Uh, So my name is Kay Benavraham. I also work on staff with Signum, organizing the Signum Symposia series. And uh, I'm a freelance writer and editor at uh, forwantofanail.net you get bonus points if you can figure out the reference. And um, I, (laughs) there's a 10 year old version of me still walking through a a Hawaiian airport carrying a very battered copy of A Wrinkle in Time under my arm. And uh, Madeline's impact on me I think has been, as you know, as Sharon said, just incalculable um, and this book, in particular, was sort of my entrance into her mind and her imagination. Uh, so I'm yeah, really thrilled to get to join everyone and talk about the movie.
2: Fantastic. I'm Sparrow, and I'm a precepting professor at Signum and I also work for Cat, so that's fun. and with Sharon and but tonight, I am particularly proud to be an adjunct professor at River Valley Community College here in Claremont, New Hampshire. And if you can see your list of attendees, there's the RVCC Kids Lit class. They're right next door to me so that we don't have strange feedback. And also about half the class has signed in from home. I said you can stay home and wear your pajamas today if you want to um, click the links. And so thank you everyone at home for signing in as well. So. I'm so excited to have like my my worlds collide and have my <laughs> bricks and mortar classroom meet my friends from Mythgard and So thank you, Kat and Kurt, for making this possible. Sure thing.
1: And just real quick for those of you who are attending, um, first there is uh, you should be able to see a little uh, questions box that you can submit questions to us and uh, or, or comments and topics. We might not be able to. You know, respond to every single one, but we'll do our best to, um, you know, either through our our normal discussion or or you know, bringing up some of the things that you guys uh, point out as well. Uh, you know, make sure we try to cover as much as we possibly can in the time allotted. So.
2: All right. And I'm I'm knitting at the same time. That's why I keep looking down <laughs> from my camera I instead that, of at
1: the and... in a friendly manner. And and I mean I have to say that it would be it would be odd to not see you knitting so uh, you know I think I think this puts there us all good. in and we That's can have true. a nice you know uh, homey discussion um, with you doing that absolutely thank you
0: yeah that seems particularly appropriate for this panel so uh, would have expected nothing less Sparrow. For... thank you. Um, <laughs> So, we wanted to kind of start, or I wanted to start, I guess kind of very generally and very vaguely, and then we can go into things in more however much specificity that we want, Um, with this question of expectations. um, We can't escape the fact that all of us here have read the novel, A Wrinkle in Time, either many moons ago or very recently and and (laughs) you know maybe a few times in between so we're coming to it with different backgrounds but we all have some relationship to the source material and then we're going into this movie where you can't help but think of the novel as you watch it and on the other hand this is a movie club and we try to make some effort towards discussing the movies as movies and as, you know, part of their own medium and their own genre and not just how do they stack up against, you know, the novel that they're based on. Um, so I kind of want to throw it out to people to say kind of what were your expectations and how do we even quantify or define those expectations? Um, the, the quote I put is from uh, a, a, an interview with Madeline Langle. Talking about not this film, but the first film, which was a TV movie made in 2003, where she was asked if it met expectations, and she said, "Oh yes, I expected it to be bad, and it is." So that, by her terms, that is meeting expectations, although (laughs) low ones. Um, How do we define meeting expectations? And maybe generally, like, what were those expectations? What, you know, did this film? you know, meet them, not live up to them, surpass them? Did it subvert them in some way? So I'm just going to throw it out to whoever wants to grab that. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. okay, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs>
4: No, actually, um, I, I, this, for anyone who follows some of uh, Corey Olson's materials, he'll often talk about how um, he doesn't enjoy disliking things uh, and critiquing things in that sense. And um, I of a similar temperament. I usually go into uh, a movie-going experience with the propensity to be pleased and delighted um, and this this movie absolutely delivered. Um, I I thought like just visually it was perfect. I, I loved I loved the landscapes. I loved the I loved the inside of the home. I loved the way that they began it with this tiny image of an unfolding and folding little paper game, um, and that the way that that tied into the then much more grandiose. Vision of tessering and this sort of like ripple effect in the in the surroundings, um, and I loved the characters. I loved how they were. I loved how they were played. Um, I thought it was yeah. I, I thought it was just a delightful adventure, um, and that was kind of what I left the theater with. was <laughs> Just sort of giddy
2: <laughs> with delight.
3: <laughs> well, I would say I have to. Oh,
2: go ahead, Sarah. I was going to agree with Kay because I expected visual gorgeousness. (laughs) I expected that I wanted the big screen. Mm -hmm. And why did I want the big screen? Um, I expected to be reminded of that book that I read to shreds when I was... 10, 11, 12, 13, 15, 20, 25, you know. Um, I expected to be reminded of it, but not have it completely recapitulated. Mm -hmm. And, but I expected and was thrilled to love Meg and to finally Mm -hmm. see Meg from the Mm -hmm. outside, as an adult, be able to look at her. Mm -hmm. And that experience of looking at Meg from the outside instead of feeling, wow, I identify with this character, saying, Oh, I can look at her now. And that experience was fabulous. Mm-hmm. And Kay, like you, I am the best audience in the world. Like I should yes. I go to magic shows and you say, Look at the birdie over here while you're picking my pocket. I'm looking at the birdie over there. So that was a lot of fun. It's a good well, way to Sharon, live. Karen, what were you thinking?
3: Well, um, you to uh, just agree that my hope when I went to the film I, I was I was hoping to be pleased and I do admit I did quite, I did go with sort of a criteria um, just of, of some very specific things that I was that I was hoping to see that I hoped that they would deliver on that I felt would be an honorable and reasonable uh, adaptation. Um, and so most of those things were ticked. i I'm not quite as easy to please as you. Uh, I, there are some some concerns I have just with the overall production value or choices they made for the film. Not necessarily was it like the book, but just the film. Um, so I have some concerns there, and maybe we'll discuss discuss those um, later. but the, the the some of the key things that I was looking for, were were ticked and so i actually came away much um much happier with the film than i anticipated because i admit i i read some of the reviews before going in um you know a lot of the confusion that some people experienced uh, criticisms that people offered up um so when i actually went and saw the film i was pleasantly surprised and um
0: mm.
3: it was it was a good experience. But again, you know, I, I'm not quite as easy to please as you gal.
0: <laughs> I'm somewhat similar in that I, I do tend to not religiously, but I do tend to be a review reader, especially if it's something that I'm particularly excited for. Um, sometimes have to kind of consciously decide not to do that just to kind of go into something fresh. Um, but I had a, a vague sense of mixed reviews, let's say. So um, that certainly tempered some of the pure excitement that I had. And so I think that maybe helped me to be a little a, a bit pleasantly surprised that I, you know, we can talk about the the quibbles and the nits we want to pick, but overall it was the spirit of it I thought was much closer to the source and more what I was sort of expecting than, um, than I might have feared leading up to the movie.
3: Yeah. Did anybody, well, Curtis, you'd be, probably be the only person who hadn't read the book. Did you read the book first or did you see the film first?
1: I read the book like the day before I went to see the film. So as far as, as far as, yeah, like, I mean, as far as that goes, like, I certainly didn't have, like, years of deep-seated preconceptions about, you know, what needed or what I hoped or wanted um, to happen in the film. Um, I think visually I thought it was very well done for the most part. Um, so, you know, I, I like, there was, there were no real, uh, yeah, like, set, you know, ideas of what I thought people should look like or act like or how, you know, mannerisms or anything like that. Um I think where, where I stumbled a little, and, and I did, I did know that there were reviews, I, not so much reviews, but like, I think I had heard like on the radio, like the box office, you know, opening was like much lower than hoped for. And that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. not, not necessarily from a review standpoint, but just like a general audience reception overall that it, wasn't meeting uh, some of those types of expectations, you know, financially or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think where I would, um, and and we'll probably get into this more on like later slides where where I would sort of go because I'm I'm much less, perhaps a little bit more like Corey is. I'm much less prone to like the visual aspects, and Kat knows this because we talk about TV every week, where like she's like, oh, I noticed this thing, and I'm like. Oh yeah, I guess that did happen, didn't it? I totally didn't even like pick that out because it's visual and not something someone said. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm more prone to like maybe think about how the ideas or, or, you know, some of the themes of it, um, played out. But I think, uh, again, we'll get into some of those in in other parts of the discussion. So I don't necessarily want to jump ahead. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, like, it is interesting because, I always, I always wonder how, like, with films like this, um, I mean, I, you know, I guess there are, there must be a lot of people out there actually reading the reviews. I tend not to myself, um, or, like, I tend to, I tend to be very good at, like, ignoring the reviews if I really want to see the movie anyway, um, and if I don't (laughs) care about it, then I'm not going to read the reviews to begin with, but, um, even, like, when they're saying, you know, uh, to pick a movie, like, cat probably would never see like, you know, the next Thor movie or something. If everyone says it's terrible, I'm probably going to go see it anyway because it's a Marvel superhero movie and I see yeah. all of them. So um, as far as that goes, like, I don't think that I had, you know, that much expectation, but but it is interesting to me to kind of think about how given that this is such a well-beloved book and it's what, I mean, it's a book that I've been meaning to read for the last 30 Uh, years you know um, because like everyone else around me was reading it you know as I grew up and you know if it was assigned in school like I missed that day or something or if it was like one of the it's totally the type of book I should have and would have read had like it fallen into my hands when I was a kid and I just I don't know why I never read it it just I didn't and so um, maybe it was banned at your library but being (laughs) yeah maybe but like (laughs) there were other books that were, that I read anyway. So that didn't stop me. Um, but yeah, no, just, just given how many people love the book and really love the story, it, it always surprises me when, um, I mean, it is a big budget film, but it's not like the biggest budget film. Like, and the fact that it didn't kind of meet, uh, you know, even, even the, the amount, like it, I think it was like 20% short of like what they spent to even make the film. Um, in the box, you know, what it earned in the box office. And so like, it just kind of surprises me that there weren't more people who were just like, ah, eh, who cares what the critics or reviewers are saying? I'm going to go see it anyway. Um, I don't know. I wonder if that's but, still
0: true because it's still in theaters. So, and I feel well, like my question my is that um, there's, there's a slight um, unfair narrative that's kind of built that, oh, because it wasn't number one, or um, or didn't maybe make quite as much money as they expected. That it it, it you kind of get the sense that it was a flop, and it wasn't. Um, you know what's kind of ironically did it a disservice was I think Black Panther came out like a week or two before, and that just has dominated ever since. But the exciting thing about it is between the two of them, it's the long it's like the highest grossing like six or seven weeks in a row with films by black filmmakers, which has never happened before yeah. making that much money. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the, the media kind of spin on it has been, Oh, a wrinkle in time was disappointing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, when it's really that black Panther became this sort of juggernaut that has just been steamrolling. Um, so it's, it sort of depends on how you look at it, I guess.
1: No. And that's a fair point. And actually the, my, the theater that I went to here, um, I wanted to go see uh, Wrinkle in Time in, you know, the, the not the IMAX, but the RPX, the, the regal version of IMAX, right? And um, it wasn't there. It wasn't available. It was all Black Panther, like, showings and stuff. And so, you know, I ended up going to see it in just sort of the standard theater, which is fine. But, like, I've become so, I, I guess I've, I've become a little too um, uh, 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 snooty as to my theater viewing habits i i i I, you know the the standard theater viewing is not as good for me anymore but um i mean not that i think that that affected my enjoyment or whatever of the film but i i get what you're saying um i'll just say to your points um as of wikipedia 20 minutes or so before this discussion at least it was only at like 80 percent of what it had grossed but you're right and and i mean i don't know that that includes like worldwide and you know obviously there will be additional sales when it comes out on video and that kind of thing Um, I don't mean to imply at all that it won't eventually like reach even that or even that that may or may not be a good measure of you know its worthiness as a film Um, just stating that those are the types of things that I was aware of going into it and Mm -hmm. it did surprise me a little bit that given its um, belovedness uh, as a book that maybe it didn't Hit those goals, but those are all valid reasons, like, like that mm. you pointed out. so.
0: Sparrow, yeah. Oh, I think mm. you're you're on. Hmm.
3: Hmm. Can't hear you. On- yeah. yeah. mm. mm. hear, hear Sparrow. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's well, her and her little. People work on that. Okay. While we Um, continue
1: on. What about what about surprises? Were there any completely surprising, good or bad, sorts of things that you guys saw or didn't see? I guess in the film.
4: Charles Wallace being adopted Mm was actually like knocked me off my feet, Hmm. especially because. They also didn't seem to. They like dropped that bomb on us, and then didn't really do much with it, <laughs> which yeah. was strange to me. I thought, what, yeah, I, I'd be curious to kind of hear all of your thoughts about like what what effect does that have on his character and on the story if he's not naturally the child the child of these two of these two people what was their motivation in in making him adopted
3: uh i i don't know that i needed a motivation i mean what does what motivation does any family have for adopting a child it could be their ideas about you know they've had one natural child and they want to participate in in nurturing the world you know those the motivations that anybody has an adopted child
4: um oh yeah I, i should clarify i meant the script writers right um yeah
3: um
4: why would the script writers make him an adopted child
3: you know i don't know i i i i don't want to be callous but this this film did sort of cover many um current uh sociological uh ethnic embracing so perhaps they thought hey this would be great to embrace more you know asian and um you know the adopted child that kind of thing the other thing may also have been um a choice um to to say that um sort of have sort of a mystery of his parentage because he's a new Exceptional type of human being. Um, so that was my other thought. Was maybe that's where they were going with that, like um, just having his parentage be a mystery, so we wouldn't go, oh, two scientist parents are always going to have an exceptional child, you know, that kind of thing. So that's where I. That's oh, where I and interesting.
4: I wonder if then um, maybe that that would be a hook into a potential future yeah. movie maybe they've planted that theme here and they'll develop it in a wind in the door or something, you know, which is very Charles Wallace focused.
0: Yeah. 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 I sort of thought it, 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 um, enhanced those themes at the end of the abandonment of the father a bit uh, or Meg's feelings of abandonment and, and her feeling on behalf of, Charles Wallace of, you know, he's the fact that they're not even sort of related by blood. It only sort of distances the father from Charles Wallace even more. Um, So not only has he not seen him since he was a baby or a toddler, but he was adopted on top of that. And so, it, you know, I think that only kind of plays into her sort of fears about what kind of guy is, you know, is dad turning out to be. And then her link with Charles Wallace being something, you know, that can't just be by their blood relation. It has to be because of the time that they've spent together. Um, you know, that was sort of, I, I felt like that's kind of the impression that they were, you know, just kind of distancing the two of them that much more to make Meg's relationship with Charles that much more special and the unique. right?
2: More primary. I mean, um, it sound any- check.
0: Yeah,
3: here, there. Good.
2: Ah, there we All go. Right, there we go. And That's thank you good. to my student who loaned me fresh earbuds that were functional. <laughs> Yay! Thank you. Okay.
3: I don't want to get off on too huge but I, since we are talking about Charles Wallace, um, get the sense or the message from the film. I'm trying to remember. I think I did that. He he is supposed to be some kind of improved new and improved version of human which you get in the in the book i'm trying to remember if that was part of the film uh when mrs watson is talking about him and how he's brilliant and things like that yes girl
2: i have to say i got that more from the movie
3: right I,
2: i that came through clearly in the movie and having him adopted i love the fact that that he was diverse from other characters. I love your explanation of the no blood connection, but it made me have a Highlander flashback. <laughs>
3: right.
2: Mysterious adopted baby is not quite human. Yeah.
3: <laughs> wow. Highlander. Okay, I'm
2: older than everyone else in the no, room. Never I, mind. I, get it. I get it. We're all okay,
0: nodding. Okay, like, okay. we
1: understand. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't, I don't, I've never. <laughs> Me
2: neither. <laughs> <laughs> what? Highlander, there should have been only one. All right, <laughs> next myth move, we're watching Highlander at, at night <laughs> or something.
0: Oh. Um, sort, of, sort of on that theme, um, Julie asks, um, what do you make of the absence of the twins?
3: I think it would have confused Mm -hmm. the story i I just i just think it was a choice they had to make on a script writing on a production on a direction Mm -hmm. on a story flow um because they feature so they're significant in my Mm -hmm. opinion for the character development of the book they 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 are given some of the lines that that foreshadow the happy medium they are representing Mm -hmm. the kids in the family who are normal who negotiate the world without these problems without these hang-ups these angst so that works for the book but I think to try to incorporate that in the film it just simply would have would have made something that was on such a huge scope even more bogged down
4: and yeah, they yeah. went the way of Tom bombadil Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> their vegetable garden made it in did you see that yes. in a That's very teeny most, teeny tiny postcard tiny size version. <laughs>
3: And I mean, I, in all honesty, I did, I did miss that voice. And um, I don't know if this is where I can insert this, but um, I really, really did appreciate um, the character of Meg. She wasn't my Meg,
4: um, mm-hmm.
3: but she was a wonderful Meg. I was not disappointed. I was not um, regretting her choice of casting. I was not regretting how they wrote her. She was you know, bristly and prickly and unhappy in her own self, which is kind of what I was hoping to see. Um, and it wasn't, um, her acting was, was really subtle and really delicate. And, and, and so that was really nice to see. But one thing that I did miss was um, one of my favorite moments in the book uh, and I will, um, I didn't put it up on the, the screen or, or give you the quote, but I would like to read it if I can. And this is when uh, Mrs. Murray is talking to Meg and trying to comfort her. Um, she says, you're much too straightforward to be able to pretend to be what you aren't, Mrs. Murray said. I'm sorry, Meglet. Maybe if father were here, he could help you. But I don't think I can do anything till you've managed to plow through some more time. Then things will be easier for you, but that isn't much help right now, is it? That so resonated with me, and that was one thing that I really missed um, is is just the idea that mm-hmm. sometimes coping with life takes time. It, it you have to give yourself, you have to allow yourself time and maturing, and and just to get through it. And so, um, you know that's one thing where our, some of the dialogue in the house at the beginning, you know, everything was really had to be cut short. And so some of that interaction with the twins and things that they did in the home and, and um, just more, just dis, more displays of, of Meg's um, science and math abilities had to be cut out because that was where that was. But again, like the twins, it just would have bogged everything down. So they have to make choices. So that's okay. Yeah.
4: Mm. And I did miss, uh, I did miss the wonderful Mrs. What's It Centaur. Oh man, I I was, I would have in any other context, I would have loved the visual that they went with, uh, but because that centaur was ah, standing in the wings and not getting to come out on stage made me so sad. <laughs> like that, uh, yeah, that the copy of the book that I read as a child um, had that image on the cover. It was a very surreal. Uh, no, it was actually a different cover than that one. Probably yeah. an yeah. earlier, like one in the 60s, I think. It was a pretty old
3: the one. I yeah. can't because I put it away somewhere because it's falling apart. I bought a new one. Mine, mine actually,
4: yeah. <laughs> mine fell apart. The covers came off. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that, the, the wingspan across the entire book and just that, like, the gender bending from yeah. the Mrs. What's It to something, you know, like, oh, it's just
2: that amazing sculpted. Yeah. yeah.
4: yeah. Mm-hmm. In a yeah. way, though,
3: i'm glad they didn't go there because they also did not present the the misses as the the stars you know the celestial star beings and it kind of like those images kind of go together so just having them sort of have you know be roaming warriors of the light you know seeking out ways to battle you know it the dark um that made it okay for them to not actually choose the centaur form because that to me would be exclusively as the almost sort of celestial angelic kind of kind of specific form that both the misses and any of the other stars who had sacrificed themselves would take so in yeah. a way it was it was kind of better that they didn't in my opinion so and I love the Great. let it yeah. woman <laughs> thing. It was fun.
0: You know, again, hey, it was cool. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I kept the quote of on the slide of outwardly Mrs. What's It was no longer a Mrs. What's It, which is still true. It's just <laughs> uh, not at all what was in the book. Um, and I guess you do get the, the impression that if they're going to have this beautiful planet with these sort of you know, living flowers that run around, she transforms into something that's appropriate for the planet. So that, I guess that's sort of the, rather than kind of introduce this idea of these, these, you know, uh, stars as they used to be. um, I,
3: I thought it was interesting that they, speaking of the flowers, that they would have kind of stick with the flower motif and instead of having the flowers be what preserves their their breathing, it actually saves Calvin. So in a sense, you know, you kind of get the same function of the flowers, just a little more excitement uh, involved <laughs> and
0: Right. Turn it into an, an action scene rather than um, right. something purely kind of conceptual, which is often what what these blockbusters do.
2: Right. And it makes it appropriate for the medium. You know, if we're gonna be looking at a big screen, let's see it big.
3: And so since we're kind of talking about like and equal or not the same thing at all, one thing that did um, surprise me, made great sense, I loved it, was the the visual, here Curtis, let me explain for you, the visual representation of it, uh, as opposed to the squishy human brain thing,
4: it always kind of
3: bothered me, even as a kid. So I'm like, okay, how does that thing survive? What is, you know, what's supporting it? They, you know, I'm like all sciencey about it. Um, and what I, I don't know if you all, I'm, I'm hoping you all picked it up, but Camazot itself, while it wasn't a planet, and that's a whole other discussion we can start to have later, um, they chose to not make Camazot an actual planet. It was this um, conglomeration of nerve cells like neural brain cells that's the that's the visual that's the structure that i got out of it so in some ways i was much happier with their version of it Camazot's a brain being this a massive huge ginormous nerve neural network i really thought that was was a brilliant um an effective choice i really did yeah, yeah sure I was
0: i'm saying this um Arthur Harris saying the same thing, that uh, it it looked like they were sitting inside neurons and and brain cells. So Mm -hmm. sort of, again, taking something that's smaller and more conceptual in the book and thinking about how do we kind of blow this up for a big screen presentation. So I
3: thought that was a, a really excellent choice.
1: Sparrow, did you have something you were going to add to that?
2: I was going to say exactly what, what Arthur did, that the squishy brain thing is you know, vulnerable to swift yeah. kick from a combat boot. Yeah. But when you're inside it, you're trapped, which you are in the story. Wow.
4: Yeah, there were things like that where it felt like the movie actually improved on elements of the book. I remember another one um, was the way or the explanation that they gave for how they ended up on camisots and why the missus couldn't accompany the children. Um, In the book, it's much less scrutable. (laughs) You know, they sort of arrive there and and they say, and of course, you know, we're not actually going with you. And it's just like, oh, sure, right. Naturally, you're not going with us. And and as a kid, you're reading it like, wait, why? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 yeah, so Gandalf,
3: I, I thought you going with them. Gandalf, why are you leaving? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: Right. Like, oh, this is the point in the young adult hero's journey where you have to go on your own now, kids. And, yeah. yeah, no, reread a comment right there. That that, stuck out, that that stood out to me more clearly rereading it recently, yeah. All right, yep.
3: So so can I bring it up, the Camazot's not being an, a planet? I mean, did you guys get that? That's what I got, that it wasn't actually a planet because they looked at the big, black, blotchy neuron blob and said, that's Camazot. That's it's Camazot, the yeah. The, you know, it's the dark. And then when mm. they go there, I feel like, you know, the, there's this sentient tornado attack on that, mm-hmm. that's manifested as if in reaction to their presence, followed by the iconic bouncy ball on the street thing, followed <sighs> by the beach. And none of those, I made a point in my notes to say, no representation of a person or a human on Kamazats to actually be a person or a human right. so it's like it wasn't right. a population which completely shifts of course the discussion about all the you know um the soviet era communism all those kinds of issues it kind of completely removes that also nothing was gray it was all highly colored because of course it's a movie it's much more exciting um so i thought that that actually was a choice that worked it was very different but it was a choice that worked but I wonder, and that's why I ask if Curtis had read the book. I wonder if to audiences who had not read the book, to have a framework of expectations, um, and then to go, oh, it's the bouncy ball scene, um, was that confusing? Did it work? Do you know, did the would you know, I'm trying to put myself in the position of somebody who had not who was not so familiar with the book, would that make sense? I mean, there was almost the the food trope, don't eat anything in fairy kind of thing. I'm not really yeah. quite sure how that was supposed to trap them or not. I mean, it de- delineated who, you know, that Charles Wallace was in the know because he's super. And Calvin, of course, is wolfing down the stuff that is supposedly sand. But um, I just wondered how that whole progression worked uh, for you guys. And um, to confirm my perception or my understanding that there weren't any actual other people. On camazotz, this is all manufactured by it. Does that? Yeah, mark? that
4: entire that entire um, choice reminded me so strongly of like movies like Inception, or um, you know particular portions of the series Fringe, where they go inside a person's mind, okay. um, and everything that you meet there is some sort of a manifestation of an inner state of you know. Um, and I, I would agree with you, Sharon. I actually think that that worked really well for the movie, uh, particularly because this is a story that is about uh, fighting this cosmic battle between light and dark, yet it's being fought almost in the micro scale in some sense, you know. Hey, we're, we're, like
3: the brain is huge. The neurons are massive mm-hmm. you in your micro yeah. visually. That yeah. Happens.
4: Yeah. 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 And the, like the way that it's fought isn't by armies and invasions and it's, it's overcoming through love, which is not a particularly uh, embodied idea, much more of a a mental or a, you know, so yeah, I thought that that, that, that choice to, to go to an inner world rather than something more tangible really didn't work very well thematically.
0: Well, and and it's true even... Oh, sorry. You finished there.
3: You go ahead. No, I'll take us off somewhere else. Google, go ahead.
0: (laughs) Um, I I think that's true even outside of Camizot's. The happy mediums Cave comes to mind with the balance beams where the whole point of it is to find that equilibrium and, 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 you know, and so not even just in Kamazots, but throughout the movie, I think you get sort of visual representations of the character's inner state and how they navigate the world is reflective of where they are, I guess, mostly Meg, but where she is in her, in her journey of, you know, that kind of coming to her self-acceptance and everything. But it did, it takes, you know, to, to not have Kamazats have taken over planets, but to be more of the darkness inside all of us, Mm -hmm. turns it more into that inner space journey, rather than um, the kind of more, I guess, Soviet paranoia that it evoked, where, you know, the the civilizations are succumbing, one by one, and Earth is under siege, but it, it hasn't given in yet, but you know, it might and. We um, will continue to fight. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and one thing that I really appreciated um, a, along those lines was, you know, the, the tangible representation of something like you were just saying, love, um, which is difficult and is not as um, favored. Uh, obviously, it was a huge theme of this book. Um, it. Might have hit people over the head. They were really, you know, reinforcing it. But you know, for kids, I think, I think it, we have to remember this is a kids' film, and I think that 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 was okay by me because that's what I wanted to see. Um, from the paper, we call it a hexaflexagon, the little paper no. toy, a hexaflexagon. You know, mm. as a representation of love and folding. Um, what I adored and might have seemed subtle was that. In the book, you have um, Mrs. Murray, who always seems sort of very unflappable and very gracious and very, you know, and even mm-hmm. with Mrs. What's It Comes in the book, she's, she kind of just goes along with it. Um, in the book, my favorite quote there about how she comforts Meg, you don't have the same bristling as, as between Meg and um, Mrs. Murray, as you kind of saw for a minute in the, in the mm-hmm. movie. Also between the two, the Mr. and Mrs. Murray, they kind of had a little moment there at the presentation at NASA where she's like, oh, honey, and he's just like, wow, you know. Um, but I, what I adored, though, was that in every instance where there was that kind of conflict, and even with Calvin, um, it was resolved. The, these, mm-hmm. these, these, the tension didn't continue, and I really appreciated that as a choice because what we're demonstrating in this film... Is how love can resolve, reach across these little things mm-hmm. so they don't become the big problem. And um, mm-hmm. I did really appreciate those just subtle, tangible um, moments of that. The only exception to that, of course, was how obnoxious Mrs. What's It was to Meg.
4: Oh, uh, I know. Uh, yeah. That, that was, was not okay.
3: That was a, very that bad, was
4: a bad choice. choice.
3: She was a, <laughs> a bully. To yeah. Meg as any of those girls now. I I sat there and I fought for a reason. And the only thing I can come up with is that perhaps she was being a mirror to Meg of mirror of Meg's own inner voice, her own inner um, criticism of herself, her own self doubt, her own, you know, those kinds of things. And so that's the only thing I can give you, but I'm not giving it very generously because I really didn't like Faith Whitson, the Me choices neither. and the way she, she was Mrs. Weston because I wanted to see Mrs. Weston and
0: Sparrow.
3: If you'll note in my notes, I said I would much rather have seen Sparrow as Mrs. Weston. Yeah. <laughs> I would. Yes. have so much fun. What's it? glory in the nights, you know that kind of the you know uh. the stormy nights. So um, yeah. So that that was um, that was the only I think real jarring note in in the the representation the tangible the, the demonstration of what healthy love looks like among yeah. friends yeah. among family how you treat people how you resolve those small conflicts before they explode into large ones even if the person you're working with is a little bristly you know yeah yeah and um what that does sorry one more thing no no finish what Late. that does <laughs> The other box I wanted ticked was that it, there would not be that gray area. It would be evil. It would be what we are fighting. It was the source of all conflict. And there was, there, you know, the, the humans... The human players, we can have compassion for. We can understand where they're coming from. We can understand how the shadow and evil is affecting them. But I didn't want to see any equivocation. It is evil, and it must be defeated. That was one of the messages that I hoped would be communicated, and I think it was. I'm done.
0: Um, Arthur's not going to rest until I remind everyone to say, the it, right? (laughs) Uh The it. In case the uh, I, I think you're all getting what we prefer, but you know, um that that was another strange little that that was one of those ones, you know, the thought I had with the flying lettuce wrap and um and with things like the it was um just certain things that I I noticed and I thought, huh, that's different. And it's like I it took me a while to even figure out do I like that or not do i dislike it why like you know certain there's always those little seemingly arbitrary choices um that take you a little while to sort of decide whether is it my own resistance because it's different or is there something that a a significance that they're missing by changing it so um and at some point we're kind of talking about characters already i do want to kind of switch sorry. to our characters discussion. Cause we're sort of
1: there anyway, but yeah. Before we do that though, can, <laughs> can I bring up a few thoughts about what Sharon said? Cause she said a lot. Yeah, um, sorry. So, I, I so, my- no, no, that, that's fine. I, and I don't necessarily disagree with any, I mean, mm-hmm. far be it for me having only very recently. And sorry, my dog is being very loud at the moment. That's not me scratching <laughs> myself. That's the dog. Um, <laughs> So you know one one of the things that I think um is lost by not having the same sort of big red brain thing um I mean well there's the whole like communist uh, or anti-communist undertones of of the story and all of that um but also I think there's a bit of a disconnect then when you get to um and I'm I'm going to see if I can go ahead a few slides here to, to like the red balls and the red eyes. And then you have the red brain and there, I I think with the imagery just in the book, you're getting more of the idea of there being the control and, and that, I mean, it's still pretty clear that it, or sorry, the it is controlling things here. So I, I don't know that that's a huge loss, but just having that same color sort of running through, a number of different things. And I've only read the book once, so I'd have to go back and see like how useful, like, I don't think, I don't think it's the same level as like white and black in, you know, Ursula K. Le Guin's Left Hand of Darkness, where there's very clear symbolism tied to the colors and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that there is sort of a softer thing going through um, the book of A Wrinkle in Time where you get sort of those, the red, and it it all gets tied to the it and and sort of the evil thing going on there. Um, I do like a good anti communist tract as much yeah. as the next uh, guy, but um, I'm okay with the sort of loss of that here. But I think one of the things that I I did feel that it missed was an opportunity to talk about conformity and finding one's own uniqueness that I Mm. think there was some setup for that type of discussion, especially when you get into like um, her neighbor and I forget the girl's name. um, And yeah. yeah. And, and some of those, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of interactions with the other children and you even get like um, moments of like um, where everyone's bouncing the basketballs and and Meg's sort of standing there, like not, Mm -hmm. and, you know, but like, like those are just like hints and it never sort of comes to fruition that I feel like, OK, we can leave the political communist side of things, but like maybe we could have still talked about sort of like individual uniqueness and, you know, being who you are and all of that a little more strongly than I think comes across. Um, so I feel like there was a bit. There, there
3: Sorry, was, what? There was a point when Mrs., with Mrs. Witch, you know, bending out nose to nose to Meg and telling her she's the only one in the universe like her. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's the sure. thing, but yes, I take your point. They, they absolutely did and, take out the free will conformity uh, storyline from language. And, and I, I don't
1: want to, I don't want to make the point too strongly because I, I think you're right. Like, like, again, I think they set it up. Well, I, I guess I just would have liked to seen that a little mm. more connected and, and I don't know, developed a little better. Yeah, um, I want, in, oh. Go ahead.
4: Oh well, I was I was wondering, um, you know, it almost feels as though it's something that they kind of folded into the dough a bit more, um, rather than like deliberately addressing it as much, you know. Because I think about even something like um, the change that they made with, so you know, casting casting Meg as a black girl and having the thing the the thing that Calvin comments on be her hair in its natural state. Mm -hmm. And so if you're, you know, um, if you're like a a, a black woman viewer, you kind of immediately, you've got this door that's opened to this entire, (laughs) this entire experience of, oh yeah, like the pressure or the, the standard of beauty is white woman's straight hair. And so the relationship to one's hair as a black woman is this incredibly fraught and difficult and emblematic thing. And the fact that they use that as kind of like the point of entry for her, or not the point of entry, but the, the talisman almost for her um, journey to self-acceptance um, that that seems to kind of speak to that issue of of conformity, and of the, there's there's a there's something about the uniqueness of like the way that you are naturally, the way that your hair grows out of your head without you having to do anything to it, mm-hmm. is beautiful. That's the thing that's beautiful about you, and it kind of ties into, um, you know, she's being given her faults as her you know her faults mm-hmm. as the thing that will enable her to be victorious. So, it, it, in my mind, the theme is still there, but it's so much more unspoken and hidden um, yes. than it would than it was in the original book. Um, but I, I just I I thought it was brilliant the ways that they kind of the ways that they that they that they did that. I thought that
1: was. Delicious and wonderful,
3: and, <laughs> it, and of course, when...
1: too unsubtle. Maybe that's my problem. <laughs>
3: well, and, and I think <laughs> in it's not the it's not the Red Scare anymore. Communism is not the threat mm-hmm. that it was to sure. kids who were doing deck and cover, um, you know, routines in school because the bomb was coming um, from the, from you know the, the USSR, and so they've expanded as in a more delicate way. Uh, as Kay says, to encompass those ideas of conformity, and I thought I thought it was was very sensitive. I thought it was nicely done. I do admit that I did not pick up on the significance of her hair being the mm. choice until I did. Read the reviews and hear the words of the um, the producer director Gal herself and, and other people's take on that. And I and I do admit that that is something that sometimes I'm oblivious to. Um, I'm a child early childhood person, and so I was you know loving everybody. That's where I come from. But um, and and I really I, I'm not as tuned into those things. So that was one thing I was very appreciative that I had read about that I was aware of how profound that is for women of color. Yeah. That it's really yeah. a profound, like you say, an entrance way to that acceptance of I yeah. love how you put it, Kate, how your hair grows out of your head is
0: mm-hmm. perfect. And yeah. That
3: was yeah. really
0: so, yeah. well it, it would have been a a great, you know, kind of message to send anyway. But what kind of gives me pleasure from it is that it's there in the book. They just sort of give a different spin on it. She mentions her hair. Like that's mentioned repeatedly throughout the series of her dislike of how it's curly on one side and straight on the other and it doesn't ever, whatever it's supposed to be, it does something else. And so they, they, it's, you know, they would have been perfectly justified to introduce that theme, but they took something that was, You know her dissatisfaction with her appearance and in particular her hair and then Mm -hmm. developed it in a very specific way that means something to certain people that are going to go see it that they don't, this is a message they're not normally getting Um, and of course like you know this was implied by everything that Kay was saying but just to kind of say it out of course when she is confronted with her sort of double, Mm -hmm. she has perfectly straightened hair with long extensions and you know kind of like bringing home the you know and then when calvin compliments it she doesn't even believe him at first it's not till the end that she can kind of say thank you rather than say oh you're just saying that you know um so i really i also really thought that was a a well done
2: Mm -hmm. decision What else do we have of questions from our audience, Kat? Um, let me see.
0: Well, let's maybe go to the characters. Um, like you know, kind of more generally. Um, I I, I feel bad for calling out a, a a negative comment. I don't mean to like single this person out. Um, but Kristen says. <laughs> How could they make the quirky characters so bland and ordinary? Um, do do I, I would like to hear Kristen expand on that? Who in particular was bland? And and, and I'm curious if folks on the panel agree with that. Um, certainly, visually they're anything but bland, but um, maybe the <laughs> uh, maybe the performances are something different. Um, a couple people spoke about. Um, Storm Reid as Meg, who I agree, um, for some reason I had the impression that people weren't that enamored with her, and I thought she was fantastic.
4: Oh, I loved her. Um, oh my gosh.
0: In some of those tough, dramatic scenes at the end, yeah, she really brought it, um, and I was yeah. I was pretty happy with with her performance. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah.
3: compare it to the little kid playing Charles Wallace. I admit I I I had a problem with Charles Wallace. Um, and he was, you know, granted he's a little kid, um, but acting level-wise, um, Storm Reid was, you know, of course older, but she really did bring it. It, it was less. Um, this is a child actor, um, mm-hmm. yeah. And so I really appreciated the
2: distinction there.
4: Yeah, I second. That. I'm going
2: to... <laughs> I heard that. I thought <laughs> yeah. that. Um, how Meg was written and Miss Reed's abilities were a perfect match. She, mm-hmm. It can't be better. That is what Meg mm-hmm. looks like from now on for me. Yeah. She, just just the skill and the subtlety and the yeah.
0: yeah. Um, one thing I really um, enjoyed this isn't a change. This is something from, you know, the characters in the book that I thought they did really, really well. Um, which really struck me on these recent rereads was, and it's so radical for Langle writing in 19, you know, well published in 1962. I think it was written even before that, but the kind of reversal of the gender roles of Meg and Calvin. Um, I just find it so fascinating. So you have Meg the protagonist, which is unusual enough, um, who's stubborn, angry, belligerent, good at mm. STEM, and mm. gets into fist fights. Um, and whereas you have Calvin, and we can talk about his performance, if he kind of sold it or not, but kind of a love interest, right? Um, good at English and, you know, humanities subjects. He's a communicator and a diplomat. He's this sort of moral compass who keeps reminding her of the straight and narrow, like these are completely reversed from, I think, in my opinion, what we usually see. Um, and I, I think, you know, Meg's performance came across a little stronger. I would, I would put Calvin in the slightly bland category in this movie myself, but I think they still got across the fact that he's taking on the, the softer sort of sidekick role
1: um, and and yes. it's bland for him the to point, too.
0: Right.
4: Mm-hmm. right. Yeah, I would say, yeah.
3: so. I mean, even in the book, he's he has learned how to adapt. I mean, this, these are very typical female tropes. He has learned how to adapt at home, to please people, to not rock the boat. He loves mm-hmm. his family in spite of their misgivings, or not misgivings, of their their really lack of care of him. He reaches out to them in spite of the fact that they don't return his, his um, care and affection, but he's okay with that. All of these things are very typical, typically ascribed to the female sidekick role. And, um, mm-hmm. and uh, it, as, as uh, Kat was saying that sometimes, no, not sometimes, quite frequently, most of the time, the only reason to have the female love interest, sidekick person there is to just yes. be interesting and to be a, a way for the macho guy to be even more macho. And so to completely flip that as Langle did when she wrote the book and then them to be consistent with that here where he didn't Calvin never overshadowed her as a character. I I was okay with the guy's performance. I thought it was what it needed to be. I thought if it wasn't anything but um sort of more in the shadows than the subtleties of what Meg needed to show. We're not going to, we're not going to come through.
2: Yeah. I actually heard. Preferred...
3: I...
4: Oh yeah, go ahead.
2: I don't mean to interrupt you, Kay, but I want to say one of the things that was important to Lengel as she was writing and to us reading was all the images of holding hands. Mm-hmm. Meg, it, Let's test her. Let's, tr- let's hold hands. Let's see if that works. And mm-hmm. then Mrs. Mm-hmm. Witch says, Though we test her together, we each travel alone. Mm-hmm. And so to Langle the handholding was important, which we can read in some of her articles. And they did it right in the movie. They had lots of different handholding. And the actor who played Kelvin, it, it couldn't have worked without.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: his really gentle, non-intrusive, of course we're about to hold hands because the scariest thing in the universe is here. Let's just, okay, let's touch in. Um, he did yeah. beautifully with that. And that was one of the very important things to me.
4: Yeah. Yeah, so um, I I actually liked movie Calvin far more than I liked book Calvin. I um, I always felt a little bit, like I was letting myself down as a you know teenager that I could never quite fall in love with Calvin O'Keefe. Um like he never made it into my male literary harem. And when I when I recently um <laughs> when I recently reread the book aloud to my husband just a couple months ago actually. Um I liked him even less. <laughs> oh wow. Um I was just so aware of how often in the romantic scenes with Meg, the he, he becomes uh, possessive or actually physically, like if you notice the number of times he grabs her elbow or he actually, it says he shakes her. He did de- like, mm-hmm. he's kind of strangely manhandling her and that one, interaction where he notices, oh, you have beautiful eyes. I don't want anyone else to ever see them. I don't want anyone else to know that you have beautiful eyes, which was just not romantic. <laughs> um, and I loved how they changed all of that in the movie, uh, that he just wasn't that type of a, of a presence in, in Meg's space. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've noticed, in you know, it's one of the troubles of rereading things that you loved when you were young is having to sort of, you know, go into the this is the part of our show called "I love a problematic thing," you know. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, in my rereads of her books in these last couple of years, I just keep noticing how so many of the uh, male love interests display those types of behaviors uh sort of possessiveness and forcefulness and um and it's a, it's kind of a shame you know uh, so i i love i really loved i loved movie calvin so much like i'll i'll, I'll probably let him into the harem you know but book calvin still doesn't make it
3: <laughs> well not to uh you know try to read langle's mind maybe she liked that touch of, you know, possessiveness on the part of a man, you know, being, being wanted or desired in that way. And maybe she thought it was, um, perfectly comfortable or reasonable and maybe, you know, maybe for that time, but it may not,
2: um, and maybe um, that had to do with the fact that he was 14 or 15 and not necessarily smooth. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you know, well, if,
2: you, if you this is your reaction and you don't know how to control it yet. Sorry, Curtis.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's certainly lots of crit fic and, and ex, external things we can point to, too. But even just within the context of the story, you know, his family is very physical, right? I mean, he's abused, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's mm-hmm. so maybe there's an a dog has something to say. She's coming up here.
3: Yes. Well, in the book, uh, he's I wouldn't think actually physically abused. He's more neglected. The book Calvin is more neglected as opposed to outright. Well, he,
4: there's actually a scene. There's a scene with the Happy Medium shows Calvin's family in the book, and she's beating her children with a spoon. That's,
3: no, you're right. You're right. Yeah.
1: yeah, and not that that doesn't mean you can't still dislike Book Calvin. I mean, sure, that's certainly permissible. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Right, Sorry, um, but uh, yeah, I mean th- that's just you know maybe there's you know not that it's necessarily a good thing, but maybe showing the distinction between what he what goes on at home and and sort of what how he then reacts to or or, or shows his own sorts of affection and love and. Again, not that that's good. It's just there's maybe a book explanation for that as well. Yeah,
4: yeah.
3: So I am wondering what your take on Charles Wallace was, how he was different from the the book, and if you thought that was helpful or harmful to the story. I have my own opinion, but I've been talking a lot, so I want to hear what you guys think.
0: Well, I don't know, it it's a tricky part, you know, for, you know, a, any child actors, you know, it's it's always a tough that's a tough casting session and um and it can be quite hit or miss. Um and I can see where for example the choice to veer away from book Charles's oddness of never talking until, you know, outside the family, you know, even as a four or five, six year old, um, I can see how it sort of maybe made sense on paper to kind of go the opposite way of say, well, in a way he kind of does the opposite, like in the middle of her gym class, he's, you know, screaming things out for everyone to hear and everything. Um, but I don't know, maybe that, uh, to me, that almost kind of played up this precocious, yes, but is he really all that bizarre or, you know, it, it took away something from the otherworldly quality and made him more into, I don't know, maybe a slightly more stereotypical, precocious, fatty, smart little kid. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, and maybe that was, I'm, I'm speculating that maybe that was the decision to sort of assist a young actor that might not have worked out quite the way that they thought it would.
4: Yeah, I wonder, um, you know, Charles Wallace in the books always seemed to kind of fill the role of the, the you know, the, the Holy Fool character, um, the, the one that sort of on the outskirts of society and is kind of, you know, patted on the head or indulged by most people and yet is the one who's seeing things for what they really are. Mm-hmm. And um, his movie manifestation didn't quite hit those same notes. At Kat. I think that was a really good way of, of phrasing it, you know, that it, it kind of brings him within the, the realm of the canny Um, that we've, you know, most of us have met very verbose young children. Um, One of them lives with me. (laughs) So um, it made it feel familiar rather than uh, perhaps I'm in the presence of something numinous, this creature who somehow seems to know my thoughts or know that I'm going to be coming down for hot cocoa and a sandwich at night, um, and I, I did I did miss that. I, I'm certainly not a um, at all involved in movie production, and so I don't really know or appreciate the difficulties of portraying something like that on the screen as opposed to in the written word. Um, but there is a part of me that wonders wouldn't just sort of like a staring small child be a a sufficiently, (laughs) a sufficiently like uncanny, creepy kind of effect? But I I, I don't know, you know, I'm, it's not my area of expertise, so.
3: (laughs) Oh, believe me, there's some creepy silent children out there who look at you right into you. They're they're out there.
0: And now that I think about it, that almost seems like the more obvious direction to go because there's a lot of those in movies, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's a a creepy silent child trope. There's no shortage of it in horror movies. That's one thing. (laughs) You're like, (laughs) apparently it's one thing that kids are really good at portraying on screen because you know, we keep making those movies. So, um, that it is now that I, when you put it that way, it's sort of like, I wonder why they didn't go, you know, mm-hmm. children of the corn yeah. is maybe a bit of a stretch, but like more that kind of route of making him a bit uncanny, a bit scary, at least to the other school children, if not to Meg, you know, privately in their house, he's one thing. But, you know, um, rather than kind of make him just like any, you know, smart aleck little kid who's just a little bit too bright for his own age.
2: Sarah, what did you have something to say? I was going to say one of the biggest differences with Charles Wallace. uh, In the very last scene, when Meg is bringing him back to the light in the book, she says, I love you. She is using her power of love to bring him back. In the movie, she was screaming, you love me. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You know, Mm -hmm. telling him who he was. Mm -hmm. His identity, so yay, I love that. But, telling him who he was, I I don't know, I love the fact that, and she did in the end say, and I love you. And and Mm -hmm. that's how he got there. But, the, energy, the movement of that energy was not what I expected. It surprised me. And maybe it made her sound, and maybe this was the point, made her sound more plaintive. You are the one who loves me. You love me. I'm reminding you who you are. So, yeah. Well, I, I think and, it, and, of course, I was crying. Right, right. right. Okay. Well,
3: it, it speaks to the that love is also restoring and reclaiming and being courageous enough, because again, here was her issues of self-love that she's not worth being loved, that kind of thing. And her mm-hmm. line was, I love you even if you hurt me and you love me, reminding him of who he was. That was, that was her line, I wrote it down. Um, mm-hmm. And so I really appreciated, I really appreciated that too, Sparrow. And that was a nuance to, to a difference between the two. Oh, getting back to Charles Wallace, the word that is missing in how they chose to direct him was perception. He was perceptive. He was perceptive mm. on all levels. He was perceptive socially. What would appear weird, and so don't do this because you know, he kind he kind of had the twins' awareness of how to just get along. But he was himself with Meg and mother but he was perceptive and that's where being able to be silent he, he had wisdom not just intelligence that's what i want to say book mm-hmm. charles wallace had perception and wisdom movie charles wallace had intelligence i'm the precocious kid and i'm smart right. and i right. can understand yeah. things yeah. but yeah. not the wisdom of what to do with the things which made his sacrifice in the book to try to stave off the power of it even more telling because that was his pride thinking he could handle it. Um, he could do it and yet he still fell. So, you know, that was kind of, that's what I, that's what I found most grating and unpleasant about the movie Charles Walsh. And I do admit that it, it did kind of, um, it was something that was hard for me to try to put aside as I was trying to enjoy the movie, so unfortunately. You no, know, I'm sure the little kid is really an awesome little guy, and he did a great job, I think, in how he was directed in the script, and the choices mm. that were made for him. So I'm not going to lay that at his little feet. So.
0: Um, how about the misses? Um, I kind of, I kind of like that title for them. I don't know about anybody else. Um, oh, we yeah. talked, we talked about um. The dissatisfaction with uh mrs what's it um how about how about how about big oprah right like that cracked me up because they didn't put yeah. that in any of the trailers um yeah and so i got in there and then to see her be 50 feet tall it, it just that sort of uh gave me a chuckle um you know i mean of course they want to i maybe it's a visual way of communicating the stature that comes through with her sort of all capitalized double consonant words of her voice being bigger than anything else. So they kind of make her physically bigger. Um, but you also just have to think that like, of course, they're going to make Oprah bigger that like she's morally (laughs) powers above anybody else. And this is sort of the role that she was destined to play. Um, I feel
4: like they
0: were
4: kind of having a little bit of fun with that, but. Yeah. Yeah. I, I found them delightful. You know, I, I, uh, much as I would have really enjoyed to, uh, see them sort of embrace, um, just older women who are allowed to not be like traditionally young and beautiful. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I had a little trying to make my peace with that before I went to see the movie, you know, uh, thinking, okay, this is, this is Hollywood. They always, they always gravitate towards the visually beautiful. Um, And so once I, you know, kind of went within that, I did find them delightful. And I thought the -the over-the-top hairstyles and makeup and costume changes were so fun, like, if you think of their, them as celestial beings who are putting on corporeal forms just for the heck of it, like they don't actually need these bodies necessarily, um, then why not do it with a little bit of flair <laughs> and change into completely outlandish outfits every few minutes, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I thought I thought that was... Uh, I thought that was really fun, and I thought the quote updates for Mrs. Who were genius. I mean, oh my goodness, that I started copying down like they got uh, they got Rumi, they got Outcast, they got Lin Manuel Miranda. That is like you know writers from like Lebanese, Nepali, Turkish backgrounds, and the Rumi quote especially. I thought could have been the theme of the movie and of the book, uh, the wound is the place where the light enters you. Man, whoever came up with that quote for the script should be like promoted to something because <laughs> that was that was just superb. Uh, it couldn't have been yeah it couldn't have been better
0: sort of another way of saying I give you your faults,
2: isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Kat, I was so excited that you invited me. Thank you. And I have to do the last 20 minutes of class um, to get people ready. Next week we're reading the Lorax, so how exciting. Thank you all for talking with me and joining me. I'm sure you'll keep going and you will see me disappear from your airway. Okay. Thank hey, you so much. you. <laughs> Bye.
0: You're the Mrs. What's It of our hearts.
3: You are. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and now that you've pointed that out, um, I think that was a missed casting opportunity. They really should have yes, sent, sent some casting scouts
1: to New Hampshire.
4: Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> I was less enamored of the quote updates um and not just because of hamilton um <laughs> no i i i mean again only having read the book once i i feel like one of one of the things that i actually really liked about the quotes um was that they all had or at least most of them had some sort of like historical significance it, they weren't just like recent quotes in popular culture. And I feel like that's what they kind of ended up becoming um, for the most part in the film. And so there was a sort of the illusion of depth or, or, you know, if we want to go all Tolkienian on it Um, also just being, just being in other languages and then giving the translations and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing in the book, which I admit would have been hard to, sort of do in the film unless you were going to do like subtitles or something Mm -hmm. um, which wouldn't have necessarily been great Um, but I really liked in the book how I I don't know you just felt like it was like quotes from all over in time and space and history which kind of goes with the whole Tesseract idea and you know the folding of time and space into you know different things so for me the quotes worked less well i'm not necessarily surprised that they updated the quotes um so you know i don't think i was like disappointed in it but i don't i i don't know i just felt like maybe doing more of a blend of some of like those older more historical quotes um mm-hmm. along with some of the maybe newer ones that are more crowd pleasers um would would have been uh better served in my opinion it's just...
3: I miss them, too, I, and again, this is a childhood experience. When I read them, I felt so smart. You know what I mean? You, you, mm. you're, when, you, when you first encounter them and you see how they, how you can apply, as Curtis was saying, historical. You know, the words from thousands of years ago can still resonate today. I appreciated that. Even as a kid, it was kind of eye-opening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not dry dusty um, the past. It it was it was bringing history to now, and and so I kind of missed that. I mean, I as I understand why they made the choices they did, and it's not a huge issue. And again, the translation would have been a probably a problem, but I do kind of miss that feeling that I had when I read the book. So, but you know, not a big yeah. deal in my, in my deal. I, I do wish. I mean, I know that Mrs. Who really does only express herself in quotes but there were times when I thought in the film that um, I don't I can't remember the actress's name but Mrs. Who was just sort of set dressing I mean she was just kind of there to say her line there were a few times that she seemed to to engage you know and, and you know I don't know I guess if I think about it, what else was she supposed to do? But she just kind of stood there and said her line when it was her cue. And then that was it.
4: Um, the bestowing of the so, glasses. No,
3: right, that's true. You know, there was yeah. that.
4: Yeah. Rumi, I also would would posit, um, does give the effect of depth Because uh, you've got like a 13th century Sufi mystic. Right. Um, sure. You know, but I, I know what you mean. You know, for for us, especially, um, you know, my my background, I was way more familiar with, um, you know, uh, like Western civilization, ancientness, not as much with any other part of the world. Um, so I think that was one of the reasons I loved having quotes that weren't all like you know old white dudes <laughs> whom I love. You know, um, but it was really cool to it was really cool to have um sort of these additional voices thrown into the potpourri, you know.
3: I don't think any of the quotes were misplaced. I think they were all effective um, and certainly.
1: yeah I, I mean, I don't disagree with any of those particular points. I think I think it's more the depth that I was thinking of, but I like I don't more diversity of opinion and thought and you know, experience is certainly a good thing as well. So Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I, I, again, like I don't, I don't think it was bad or unexpected per se. It just would have liked to have that more of that depth to some of the quotes. If we could have kept some of that.
3: She probably had
4: a lot more lines in the book too, in comparison to the number that she was given in the movie.
3: Yeah, she interjected a little more frequently into mm-hmm. the action and the direction and um, yeah. it seemed like her words did inspire or inform Meg specifically, even Charles Wallace, of course, too.
0: Yeah,
3: um, And I do have yeah, to, no, no, oh, was sorry.
0: no,
3: no, finish okay. what you're saying. I was just going to say that I, I visually Kay, you found the the misses very playful, very wonderful, marvelous. I did find um, particularly Oprah's appearance distracting. It was just a little more than I was willing to take, and if only because I started thinking, "Wow, that's a lot of glitter. How would they get that on? Does she eat it? Does it get no right? Spice? Right. I mean, you know what I'm saying." And so I think. <laughs> I think that yeah. that just kind of it it yeah. it interjected and so it got in the way and you know and it made me think of other things and other other people dressed up like that and mm-hmm. it took me off on a tangent. So in a way I kind of felt it was it was not really Mrs. Witch. I felt it was Oprah in fancy dress. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. if Oprah you know, Oprah's Oprah, I mean in other films she has been in, she has been the manifestation of that character, she yeah. hasn't been Oprah in this movie. She was Oprah. <laughs> you know, I mean, wonder what what it would have been she ready. couldn't have been Oprah,
4: right? Well, no, see, that's that's what would have been purple. great if they had. Oh, sorry, we're no, sorry, I just, just cutting I off.
3: Her in the color purple, and
4: you know, mm-hmm. some of these other
3: roles that she's taken on. I can't remember the other one she was in that was called. Anyway, um, Selma,
4: wasn't she in Selma? Yes, yeah, yeah,
3: um, yeah.
0: And um, um, Beloved as well, yeah. That Beloved,
3: that's the one I'm thinking of, Beloved. Um, so I know that she has the chops to do that, but it just, I don't know, maybe maybe those wolves just, Mrs. Witch and Oprah were so alike in themselves that it couldn't be anything else. But yeah, the glitter got to me, I have to admit. It, it, it <laughs> and the end, oh, when Meg and the glitter is blowing off her eyes. Um, yeah. Yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah. Nightmares. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wonder, um, wouldn't it have been wonderful if they had given themselves permission to uh, drop beautification as the only lens through which we see the misses, And if they allowed them to sometimes appear yeah. as, like, unadorned women. Yeah. Um That would have been awesome. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Even if they'd sort of started as, you know, Mm -hmm. the mysterious crone who sort of blows in on the dark and stormy night, and then they're sort of revealed in these other aspects, might have sort of got at that. Um, People should look up this um, uh, article in the LA Review of Books um, by Sarah Mesley, I think her name is, um, because she talks about... um, some of these things that we're talking about, um, she mentions, um, she goes on for a bit about Meg's glasses and her hair and everything. And, and similar to what, um, Sharon was saying about the kind of weight of history of black cinema that Oprah brings with her of, we've seen her as this represented representation of, you know, black females suffering on screen for so many years now. And it's, it, you know, having her be this sort of the one to affirm Meg and her, you know, her identity and her self-worth is sort of, that's not lost on the people making this movie. Um, yeah. And, you know, but then the the article kind of finishes saying like, you know, that's all well and good, but um, she has a great line about, um, might we not allow aging women to show the wrinkles of their own time? And yeah. so, in, in using Mrs. Witch as this inspiring figure for Meg, you lose a little bit of something that was there in the book of what that character was able to represent.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And maybe they could have had both. You know, maybe it could have been a you start with them one way and then you show them another way. It didn't have to be either or. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Are we Any good other, with the character?
0: uh, Characters. Yeah. I mean, we can. Uh, I can Have we done two slides. And it's the slide number. Two. Yeah.
1: I mean, we've, we've kind of gone back and forth on a number of these things. Are, so we just can't um, make fun
3: of Corey
4: anymore. That's, that's the moral of this story.
1: No, but <laughs> no see, we're, 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 we're intentionally different from all the stuff that Corey does because,
0: uh-huh.
3: We don't care sure.
1: what slide we get through or how many there are or even what order we take them in. So that's, right. that's, that's intentional. Um, uh-huh.
4: Whatever you need to tell yourself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> one other the things, so um, we talked a little bit. Um, so going back to um, the fact that like the book had this like anti-communist thing in there, one of the things that I, sort of couldn't help but compare when I was reading that um, and then noticing that, like, it's not in here is, is just how much a product of the time it was in that respect with regard to all of the other science fiction being done. So, of course, I'm thinking of things like Robert Heinlein's The Puppet Masters, which is totally another, you know, anti-communist allegory of all the people, Mm -hmm. you know, being you know, having like alien things on their back that makes them do all these like things the same and whatever, um, or, um, you know, films like the the one with the pod people and the Day the Earth Stood Still and like all of these types of things. Um, but then I was also trying to think of like, there, there were other sort of fantasy and science fiction elements um, from other books too that that I felt like that book, I don't know if it was responding to them or if it was even if Langle was even conscious um, of them when she was writing it or whatever. But one of the ones that struck me was similarities to out of the Silent planet, um, mm-hmm. where you have this concept with um, wrinkling time, where you have the earth that's sort of covered by this darkness and sort of out of touch with the greater universe and things going on around it. Um, And that that's sort of what the evil is, right? Is this idea that there's a darkness, um, you know, sort of keeping you from being in touch with the rest of um, creation or the universe or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was trying to like, I, I mean, I don't think, this has that same quality, but I would say like in comparison with like the communism thing, which doesn't apply at all to the film. I do feel like you, you get that idea of like the out of touchness a bit and, and sort of that idea of more through the science and stuff, I think. And, and I think this is true in the book too, that there's, that there's a way whether maybe it's through the tesseracting or the, or the the tessering, I keep using the wrong verb there. Um, the the tessering uh, that there is this sort of connectivity,
3: mm.
1: you know, to every part of the universe and and everything in there. If you just sort of take the time to understand it, and I really one of the things that I really was the visual um, of you know like the sand on the the, the frequency. Mm table top thing and it, you know showing uh just sort of like if you get the right frequency it kind of makes this beautiful thing and and that sort of resonating um with the uh you know idea of of sort of being in tune and and aligning yourself and and being able to yes Sharon I'm feel like I'm sort of fumbling through what I'm trying to say so go ahead and
3: you're touching on a choice that they made, which I thought was very interesting, a change from the book to the film. Um, the book, and uh, not only do we have the Soviet era, era, but we also have the space race era, because as you'll remember, yes. Uh, yes. Dr. Murray was with the team. It was his turn to try this testing, and it was it was a scientific, um, more experimental, experimental process that seemed very technical. In the film, mm-hmm. the key mysterious essence that would make tessering work was mm-hmm. this experience of love, which yeah. is what Dr. Murray saw when he looked at his wife cuddling Charles Wallace, his thing starts going, he says, I hey, am working and he's gone on accident. He's mm-hmm.
1: yeah. a yeah.
3: program trying to get to Mars. Um, yeah. So that was a significant change, and if you'll also remember, in the film, and this is reflected in the book as well, every time Meg, in her bristly, unhappy state, tessered, it was a struggle, it was that gray thing, she, it was it was hard on her, and then at the end, when she's embraced all the love, and herself, and, and everything's happy-dappy-do, then her experience of tessering is this full as you say curtis it's no longer hindered it's no longer um under the shadow it's no longer a struggle she's fully um fully what do they use the word i don't know anyway she's fully into it and she experiences it fully so again we have the love element um mm-hmm. the antithesis of the evil and the dark that's limiting as you would say curtis the the so that's kind of all.
4: Yeah. In the film. Yeah. And the the sort of repeated desire of Mr. Murray, I wanted to shake hands with the universe.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, I loved that. I loved that conclusion. Mm-hmm. I wanted that. I wanted that, you know, sort of like what Curtis is describing to reach out and connect to uh, form that bond. And then the cycle that he comes around to is i should have been holding yours mm-hmm. there was this opportunity for connection in his home that he didn't actually have to travel anywhere to to have it there with him um yeah that's a and
3: that's a, that's a also rather modernizing of the role and the position of science way mm-hmm. back in the 60s um now it's it's we're looking at response you know we're trying to look at responsible approaches to science because we can do it should we do it um, What are the what are the implications of this? So it become a little more metaphysical and, and, and mm-hmm. philosophical and um, Because in the book it was still the the space race our heroes the scientists going where no one has gone before and and being again, the whole setup with uh, Mrs. Murray and Dr. Murray, uh, the your mother and father, was there was that sense that she knew he was on a mission. There was no mystery. She knew he was gone. She knew what was going on. She didn't articulate it to the kids, but it's a, it's like it's, it's you know when your husband, when your spouse goes to war or when your spouse you know is doing their job, and so it's a, it was a different dynamic. Um, but again, I think it touched more on uh, it. It demonstrated what Curtis was, was expressing about, um, you know, the, the hindrance, the, the shadow between what we can, you know, achieve in the universe. Um, very nice. Yeah,
0: and I think that's, to me, what kind of uh, stands out most clearly about Langles you know in these books that's different than anything else I can think of is that particular blend of science fiction and fantasy elements with you know with the history and the philosophy and the religion that she does it in a particular way um of communicating better than anybody the kind of connectedness and oneness of all things that you know this sort of this book sends them to. Outer space, and in the following book, it's into the inner space of, and and you get a sense. (laughs) Spoiler alert! (laughs) Spoiler alert! And they all die. Um, (laughs) But like the to get into the next one, the 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 sense of going inside is given the same grandiose sense of space as. The space adventure. Um, and and then in subsequent series, you start going backwards and forwards in time and sort of, and, and like, not that nobody else plays with those elements, but her sort of philosophy in, in this series in particular seems to be about demonstrating that molecules and galaxies are essentially kind of the same thing. And you know, that the exploration in both directions is a very similar journey, and kind of bringing in the ways in which philosophy can sort of, you know, or religion or history or whatever it is can sort of speak to the spiritual aspects of that, but also not losing her joy in the physical science of it either. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think I don't know why I feel like I can't think of anybody else who. He puts it in quite that way yeah
4: yeah she's always in especially in the second book she's always kind of repeating that mantra size doesn't matter when doesn't matter where doesn't matter you know there's a the the, the things that you're grappling with are already with you and in you so if you're going macro or if you're going micro you're mm-hmm. still on the hero's journey you know which yeah, I, I I loved I remember loving that as a as a kid. It was
3: very I thought, yeah, yeah. yeah. You felt you felt like really really cool. I mean it was just fascinating. It was just a satisfying bite to it. You could really experience that. Yeah. I agree.
1: So so since the subject of sequels and further stories came up I thought as we come up on sort of the um two hour mark here and not that we have a hard stop necessarily if we wanted to keep going but we have been criticized in the past about going too far past uh the allotted time um yeah I just wanted to bring up this sort of last slide that we have um here from Miranda American uh that uh I guess, I mean, these are things that would be lost on me, not having read beyond the first book. And so I don't necessarily know, other than sort of my sense as a movie viewer, what might be set up or potential set up or a missed set up for um, future films. Um, I don't even know at this point if they're planning on doing a sequel. I suppose some of that will be determined going back to the f- financial discussion we had earlier, although I could see them saying, well, heck, you know, maybe maybe we'll try and do one anyway, like, um, you know, even if even if it uh, doesn't end up doing as well as one would hope. But anyway, so, um, Kat, I think you had put together sort of some of these ideas about um, do we think maybe they'll, there will be more or, or what are sort of the um, threads that could be pulled if there were additional stories to be told. Um, so I don't have any particular thoughts on these but do any of you? <laughs> and what would the you
4: like the first talk? one The first one uh, you know the omission of Sandy Hans. Um, I actually if I if I were a betting man um, I, I would I would bet that any sequels they do would just completely omit many waters. Um, not just because they got rid of Sandy and Dennis, but actually because Many Waters is the one you would have the hardest time not touching on Bible and Christian stuff. And judging by how thoroughly they scrubbed this movie of any references to Christianity, um, I would guess that it would be very unlikely that they would attempt to cinematically depict an antediluvian world in which we're trying to figure out you know how we're going to survive the flood the flood flood and blood and who like, deep bible geekery land which i love you know uh but um i can't see that one making it past the cutting floor <laughs> Yeah,
0: <I> was, <laughs> was going to for anyone who hasn't read them takes played before the flood so that gives yeah. you that gives you
4: Yeah. And honestly, like as a part of the time quartet, it's the one that, that is the misfit really, um, you know, because the others have the same main characters and then all of a sudden we're with Sandy and Dennis. Um, so yeah, so it, it, you know, from a, from an editing perspective, it, it would be easy to cut that one. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my bet. I'm not actually betting any money on it, but you know, (laughs) that's what i would Um, guess
3: on the slide you point out that of course we had principal jenkins there um and so that of course he's a feat he's a character in wind in the door but what's missing was any um visual of calvin's mother who features significantly in a swiftly tilting planet Uh, she was completely Mm -hmm. not there Mm -hmm. Um, and given the appearance of his father I would say how his mother was beaten down you know, she didn't have her dentures her teeth, you know, she was all you know, crummy and not the child that you saw, not the young girl that you saw in her youth sorry, spoilers Planet. I'm not sure how that would, you know, obviously it's not impossible but she was missing, so I'm not sure about that as a sign, you know, of there being future story.
0: Right. right. On On the flip side, on if flip if I side, was a better person, ben um, ben I wonder ben if ben casting ben Andre, Andre Holland, Holland a well known we, actor, as an actor as might have been paving the way for just maybe maybe if we want to do a room in the door, we could bring him back. Bring him back. Hmm.
4: And I guess especially because that that scene when they're doing the voiceover about the it and the effect that it has. And they go into that boardroom and everyone's like, yay, Mr. Jenkins. And you're seeing the jealous looks of the other teachers. And there's like, well, there's a whole story there that we never really get told anymore about in this movie. <laughs> so I wonder if that's another, like they're kind of hooking for the next, for the next one, you know? Yeah. Or at least
3: leaving the
0: possibility open yeah
3: it could be I'm I kind of um I mean you you point out that Kelvin and Meg didn't kiss or you know those kinds of things um I I I can see though where this movie could stand alone easily I I think it could go either way so I guess that's my point
0: Yeah and, I think, um, yeah, and I think Eva um, DuVernay's got something, got something that got big movie, movie lined up yet. next, um, um, so I guess maybe, I guess maybe they, if they perceive this as sex, uh, successful, she might move on to bigger and better things rather than sort of filming a new franchise. But um, but I guess as with all these things, they want to see what the returns were, so um, You know, I feel like the sense of this one is it could kind of go either way. It was neither did it change, you know, box office history, nor did it completely flop. So I guess we'll see what they decide to do with it.
3: Yeah. Does anybody know if they obtained rights to the whole franchise or just the one title?
1: I don't know that. Good question. I would imagine Disney could get the rights if they really wanted them.
3: Yeah. It's not like the Tolkien estate, you know?
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, there may be other issues there, but I, I would be surprised if they didn't have plans to, you know, be able to expand, even if they an, never end up actually expanding.
0: Right.
1: That's just my cynical, <laughs> you know, they, they
0: could own them and not necessarily choose to do
1: anything with sure. it. Sure. All right. Hmm. Well, I mean, unless, unless there's any final thoughts, I mean, I think uh, that was a pretty good discussion. Thank you.
4: I have one last quote that I thought was awesome that I wanted to share. It was, okay. um, it was by uh, John Jennings, who's a professor of media and cultural studies at the University of California at Riverside. Um, and it was actually about Black Panther, but the connection was through, um, the critic Kiara Wardlow, who was saying that, um, seeing, uh, this is her quote, seeing an identity comparable to yours, consistently depicted as a source of pain and angst also becomes tiring. And so in both Black Panther and in this film, you have, um, what, uh, NPR, uh, critic was calling a world of unremarked upon diversity. So the way John Jennings put it was, uh, the future for black people in America was supposed to be connected to only three spaces. One, the hold of a slave ship, two, the plantation, and three, the grave. The construction of a space of agency, joy, and true freedom has always been the central focus of black speculative culture. I thought, that was one of the ways in which this film excelled. Um, It just landed us right in the middle of that. And it was, it was beautiful to behold. I loved it.
0: Nice. And it, it pulls the, you know, the movie and its source novel into Afrofuturism as a genre, right? Like it sort of kind of, puts it in a hole without losing the original categories. It adds another category that it belongs to. And that's, that's a pretty exciting thing.
4: Yeah. Stay tuned for a future symposium panel. We hope on Afrofuturism.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. And Can't on talk. that note, stay <laughs> tuned till March 3rd for our next movie club on alien. Um, thank you everyone for joining and we'll, we'll see you then.
0: Thank you.
1: Thank you. Bye. <laughs> the Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013. Completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org/fund.